I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations, real, honest, authentic conversations, the kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whomever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. So I rely on donors and patrons, individuals in other words, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm. On today's show, we'll hear from Rav Aurora, who I spoke with in a live conversation on Patreon on November 18th. Rav is a 20-year-old journalist living in Canada who writes for the New York Post. His primary interests these days are vaccine mandates, racial identity politics, psychedelics, and meditation. Here's that conversation. Hi, everyone. We're live. Um, This is Rav. Um, Okay, so everyone, Rav is a 20-year-old journalist, just like me. You have, like, a diverse interest set. That's good for a young man. Yes. Yeah, I'm very diverse. I I mean, diverse in the sense of, like, some people think I'm, like, a, a coconut person, like, white on the inside, brown on the outside. When it comes okay. to racial issues, but no, but no. Otherwise, like I, yeah, I, I have so many fucking interests, and the benefit of having a public platform like I do is like I can kind of write more or less whatever I want if I can yeah. articulate the information in an interesting way. And so I used to write more about racial issues, woke culture, policing and crime, especially, which I'm still writing about. But now I've sort of deviated more into vaccine mandates. Because I see how it affects people in my own life and in Canada, um, and also I'm just really into spirituality and meditation and psychedelics and mental health is really important for me. So I'm always trying to give that give that topic some time too. Which uh, I just started a Substack to uh, devote some writing to psychedelics, MDMA, and psilocybin and meditation specifically. Oh, cool. Okay, what's your Substack? Ravarora.substack.com. Okay. Um, how did you, how long have you been into psychedelics? Like, did you get into psychedelics by doing psychedelics or like, is this something you were like studying or what? Yeah, I just, you know, over the past couple of years, it's just been really, it's been a really bizarre time for me because so much is changing in real time and I can almost like never predict the next day and so much going on in my personal life and social life and after graduating high school, I was just really, really lost. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I went through a series of difficult circumstances and times. And eventually I established my voice with journalism, which is great. Um, but then a few other things happened with my personal life where I felt like I needed to establish a deeper kind of spiritual connection. And then I really got into meditation, which has been immensely helpful for me and for my mental health. And then I started uh, reading about Buddhism and I'm studying that in in university right now, studying Buddhism and Hinduism and looking back at some of these sacred traditions, which I feel like we've uh, lost as a society on our phones and ordering Uber Eats and going on drives and, you know, doing all these sort of external things and we're not actually addressing like deeper issues with our psyche and uh, 
you know, our, our God-shaped hole that we have in our hearts that I, that's the way I put it, which I feel like we need to channelize in healthy ways rather than ways that merely just distract the problem. And so about six months ago, I started reading a lot about psychedelics and I, I was just so curious and I was brought up in this culture of like, don't do drugs, drugs are bad. And I still kind of hold that belief a little bit. But with psychedelics, as I began to read the literature, both the anecdotal stuff and the actual scientific literature, I was like totally convinced that this is something that I should try and that a lot of people should try under the safe, safest possible settings under kind of guided shamanic kind of conditions with people who have experience with this stuff. And the, the motivation for that was just kind of spiritual and um, kind of accessing a certain part of mind that you just can't access. Um, Sam Harris talks a lot about this, which I find interesting. And so I've been microdosing lately on, on psilocybin, done a bit of ketamine, but next month I'm going to have my first full, uh, experience with the MDMA and then psilocybin, hopefully in the new year with a, uh, a top clinic here in Vancouver that does a lot of great psychedelic, uh, therapy. So you do like MDMA, for example, and there's like a therapist there to kind of guide you through some kind of process. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly it's there just as like a safety net. So mm-hmm. like you take it and sometimes people just freak out and they're terrified by the overwhelming sensory and, and kind of internal experience that unfolds itself. So it's more of just like a holding your hand sometimes, or sometimes people start bawling, start crying profusely. And so that's just kind of the therapist is there just to kind of help you out in those moments. And then more importantly, just help you integrate some of those deeper psychic insights into your own life. Mm -hmm. That's cool. I've only done drugs uh, for the purpose of partying, which I enjoy. So (laughs) I've never done it for like therapeutic purposes, but um, I hear that it's useful. Um, I know a lot of people who are like into microdosing and, um, yeah, and using psychedelics and things like MDMA for therapeutic purposes. So that's interesting. Um, have you done? Have you done MDMA? I have. I don't like MDMA to be honest. Um, okay. I actually don't really like drugs that much, which sounds odd because I've done a lot of drugs, but I don't enjoy like the feeling of being high, um, and I don't enjoy. I guess it's like I don't like not feeling in control of the high. Like I don't like like to me MDMA. I feel too high and it lasts too long. So I'm just like, this is too much and it's going on for too long. I don't like it. I just want to like feel normal again. Um, So I suspect it would probably be like a more positive experience. Like when you, so when you do it and you have like a therapist present, like how long is like the session? Like three or four hours. Yeah. Okay. With MDMA. Yeah. But it, uh, um with mdma the most common experience people have is unconditional love and this kind of this oneness this connection with the the universe connection with reality that you just can't feel otherwise mm-hmm. and so many people they come out of it and they just feel totally transformed and they've been exposed to a certain state of mind that is just so difficult to do an ordinary living unless you've been meditating for like 10 years in intensive retreats and you actually know what it feels like to not incessantly identify with every single stupid, trivial thought that comes in your mind. So 
So that just really appeals to me because I'm just a constantly driven person, always running on a hamster wheel, like thinking of new ideas and new articles to write and shows to do and different things to explore. And so sometimes I need a little bit of quieting and just kind of a spiritual kind of um, grounding. So I don't just, you know, jump up and down all day and, you know, go crazy, which I, I tend to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I just want to check in with anyone who's currently watching on Patreon. Um, If you do want to ask any questions or comment or anything in the live chat, you have to click through to YouTube, um, which I linked to on Patreon, obviously. But yeah, you have to click all the way through, not just like put questions in the comments below. You can participate. And um, yeah, so Rav... Tell me, so how long have you been in in journalism and how did you get into journalism? Yeah, so like I was saying earlier, I graduated from high school. This is 2019. Mm-hmm. And I was just bored out of my mind, didn't know what to do with myself. But I was always a really good writer, always very kind of philosophical and reflective and pretty articulate when it comes to writing. Um, and so I, I just started kind of blogging here and there, and that was kind of cool. But then George Floyd happened in 2020, mm-hmm. and there was this this outpouring of racial justice consciousness everywhere, right? And so it was affecting my life here, like in Vancouver, or I live close to Vancouver in a place called Chilliwack. Um, it was affecting there, too. There was protests there, and it was... Uh, radically changing some parts of the way teachers were teaching even courses like English. Um, I saw it with my peers and my siblings. And so I thought it was the right time to kind of step up and start writing about some of these things and kind of take a stance against some of the radical abolitionist kind of view that was dominating the mainstream. And so I started writing about it and it really resonated with a lot of people, which was really surprising. Um, But then it occurred to me like, there's a real uh, shortage, a deficiency of real journalism right now in the mainstream media. And so it wasn't a surprise that somebody like me who can write and can, you know, sort of articulate some interesting things with nuance and data and look at a problem like police brutality or racial disparities in income and education with a bit of a nuanced perspective and not just, you know, white supremacy, white supremacy, but like, oh, there's cultural factors and historical factors, and this is what we should do. We shouldn't just destroy the whole system and start new. We should, you know, incrementally improve and reform things. And so a lot of people were um, really impressed with that. And so I kept doing it. So that was last summer I started writing about racial issues and policing and crime. And also I was just always fascinated with crime and with homicide, violent crime specifically throughout high school, always kind of following what was happening um, in terms of policing and criminal justice. And so that was just kind of, I had this knowledge just kind of brewing in the back of my mind, which suddenly came into action. And so people were reading the stuff and I just kept on writing and writing um, and people were liking it. So here I am, you know, a couple of years later and it's going good. So, I mean, so you were around during you, you did you grow up in Chilliwack, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and but you went to school at SFU. No, that... UFE. Oh, why did I think yeah. you went to SFU? I think I mentioned to you cuz you went to SFU, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, my dad went there. I think that's. Oh, why. okay. Sorry, I got that messed up. Yeah. Okay, so like, what did you think when the BLM protests that obviously started in the U.S. came to Canada? Did you see any of them, or were you involved in any of them, or? Yeah, well, it was happening in Chilliwack, where I oh. live. So Is there a lot happen- of police violence in Chilliwack? No, <laughs> no. Well, no, the, the idea was like, this is a, you know, racism is a global problem. And so we should fight racism together, even though to this day, there's no evidence that the tragedy with George Floyd was in any way a product of white supremacy or racism or racial bias. That was just a narrative that was concocted from the start, concocted from the start due to the, just the fact that it was a white police officer and a black suspect, even though we know there are well, that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down, but uh, in terms of police brutality, but in terms of what was happening in my friend's circle, like this was like a, a an ideological kind of parasite that had just kind of creeped into my community, into a place that's fairly conservative, you might say. But the younger people, they saw it and they were being brainwashed by like Sean King, Colin Kaepernick and BLM activists on Instagram everybody's just like blindly reposting stuff like we need to defund the police and abolish the police but like 19 18 year old girls and boys like in in my area like some of my friends next door neighbors too just like reposting stuff blindly and then i would like confront some of these people that i'm very close with like hey hold on Did, did you just see what you reposted you just reposted a thing saying that we should abolish the police and they're like and and they're they're so like programmed and conditioned by this radical ideology and they're like yeah yeah we have to burn the system down everything's you know, rooted in racism and we have to ensure greater quality and, you know, people of color are, are oppressed in our society. And I'm like, dude, what happened to you? We were just like chilling the other day and making like jokes about like Indian people and like mocking each other's accents because that's what we do. We make fun of each other. That's kind of a sign of like actually accepting each other's like making fun of each other's culture. And, you know, I had several friends who were part of other immigrant communities. I'm from India, by the way. That's where I was born. And then we came to Canada when I was about four years of age. And I have experienced a lot of racism when I was growing up. And I've written about this before Um, in elementary school, especially. It was it was a significant problem. A lot of people that bullied me then, which took a big toll on my self-esteem. But eventually I I I got to a point where uh, when when I went to middle school and high school and the classes grew bigger, it just naturally became more diverse. And after about seventh grade, it was never really a problem. But what happened with BLM, the protest last year, was the the problem of racism was exaggerated, magnified a hundredfold into this like global problem, this epidemic of white supremacy, up until the point where you had medical professionals in the U.S., I think it was about a hundred of them that signed a letter saying that not only were the protests safe to do with masks, but that it was a moral imperative to go out and actually protest because white supremacy is a more uh, deadly disease or problem in society than COVID is itself. And that to me was like, uh oh, we have a problem on our hands when we when all these people who are saying lockdown, lockdown, wear masks, two masks, four masks, I don't know do all these radical measures, but they're like, no, 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 white supremacy, that's a problem. Go outside in your proximity to everybody where you're spitting and yelling and protesting and whatever, who cares? But that was suddenly a big moral imperative. And so 
that was just like the perfect moment where everything just culminated and it was like okay enough is enough we need to change the way things are and that's kind of where i came in and started writing about these issues and people were reading it and tweeting it and sharing it and stuff and that that was kind of the the uh, genesis of where i am right now well and it's interesting to say that you know for example like because racism is such a huge problem in Canada, supposedly. And it's only like a one particular form of racism, because if we're talking about the BLM protests, we're specifically talking about this white black binary, which is like, yeah. I don't feel I don't feel like that particular politic represents racial demographics in Canada, never mind the history of racism in Canada or what is currently happening in terms of racism in Canada. But like it's like this is such a big problem that it's okay to risk, you know, a super spreader event, but not freedom. Like the freedom rallies were dangerous and not okay because they could spread COVID. Yeah. Kill grandma. But these stupid BLM protests, and I say stupid because I really think that they are pointless in Canada. I don't think that we have, I mean, you can talk more about this because you've written about it, but I don't think we have a huge problem with racist police violence in Canada in terms of, you know, white police officers going around killing black people. And, um, yeah, and that it's like our our actual constitutional rights and our free speech and our freedom and our liberty and, you know, all of this is, is not a dire issue, but this BLM protest really is i mean so and and somebody asked a question about this in the comments actually what were your findings about violent crime but you know what have you learned in your work in terms of violent crime racist crime police violence stuff like that in canada in oh in canada not the u.s well you can talk about both yeah well yeah, yeah with, with canada um the like you see the same media cover the same activist response to certain events like last in 2020 you had a few a few cases that ended up in um that ended up prompting riots well mostly mostly protests but the same calls to defund the police and abolish the police and that kind of thing like you had a few cases that I actually wrote about at the time I can't remember the uh, exact names but in Toronto, you had uh, two or three cases of there was one black woman in Toronto who the police entered the, uh, her apartment because I believe her mother or her aunt or another family member had called the police because she was having um, some kind of mental health episode where she was getting really violent. The police enter and then somehow she fell off the balcony. And uh, and then the whole narrative after that was suddenly the police threw her off or she uh, the police didn't the police didn't intervene quickly enough. And it was because they they were afraid because she was black and they treated her a certain way, like just totally like bullshit, speculative assumptions. But this stuff ended up in Vice Vice News because you know nobody should ever trust Vice, except when they write about like psychedelics or or other things that are more. Um, you know, not requiring objective analysis. <laughs> um, but, but there were a few cases in Canada where that kind of same theme emerged, that same racial justice politics just kind of permeates here. Um, but in terms of the U.S., um, if I were to kind of talk about one thing here, 
in terms of what I've found in, in terms of what I'm still writing about right now is that uh, in 2020, the U.S. experienced a historic rise in homicide, 30% increase in homicide from 2019 to 2020. Crazy. And that, that's, the, that's the biggest increase in homicide in modern history in the U.S. It's gotten very little media coverage. There's like one New York Times article. And there were, there were a few of my articles that did really well on this, the New York Post, where I was highlighting these issues. Um, and you saw you saw greater increases in homicide and violent crime in black communities in Detroit, Chicago, Baltimore, um, New York, here in L.A. as well. Um, you, you saw higher increases in homicide than in white communities. And um, we saw about 1,000 excess black lives that were killed in 2020 compared to 2019. That's a huge number. That's, that's incredible. Um, a lot of... Um, there was also a sharp increase in the number of kids that were killed in 2020, hmm. uh, mostly black kids in inner city areas. So many stories that I've like gone through in my writing, which for whatever reason, like even living in Canada, um, like even some people like uh, they critique me for this. Like you're in Canada. Why are you writing about homicide in Minneapolis? Which, which for whatever reason, I'm basically the only prominent journalist covering what's happened in Minneapolis over the past year. And we can talk specifics if you want to, but well, what's happened there is just absolutely crazy. It's the, the police have pulled back. Um, they've lost hundreds of officers. And predictably, homicide has risen there. And exponentially, um, an exponential increase in homicide, disproportionately impacting black communities, not rich, urban, you know, white communities. Um, and, and so I've been writing about what's happening in Minneapolis and other cities where homicide has skyrocketed. And the, the reason for that is... A mix of factors, um, but predominantly the factor is that in the aftermath of George Floyd, several police departments were were defunded, and more importantly, uh, officers were demoralized. That had a that had a huge impact that we can't even quantify really. But um, because what 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 happened was is you kind of had this chain reaction where you kind of had raised the cost of policing, like in order for police to do their jobs. That means they're going to be in contact with disproportionately black suspects because violent crime is disproportionate um, because uh, black offenders commit a disproportionate uh, uh, percentage of homicide. And so you're going to have more cases of police being in contact with black officer with, with black individuals where they can make a mistake or do the wrong thing or even do the right thing, by the way, do totally do the right thing where they have to shoot because their life is in danger but the media is going to tar them as racist. And in some cases, the police department might, fi might fire them under, under media pressure. Mm -hmm. And so you had record number of officers leave the force across the U.S. Um, and in general, just police pulling back from actually initiating contact. Like you even saw in some of the data in individual cities where there's a sharp decrease in the amount of traffic stops police are making because it was so disincentivized by the media and by politicians so homicide skyrocketed as a result in the U.S. And, and I think that's like one of the reasons why a lot of people read my work is I actually highlight these issues, which, which columnists at the Washington Post and the New York Times who are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to write about racial justice issues, violent crime and criminal justice. Um, but they're not writing about these issues because it, it doesn't fit their narrative. Because if they were to write about these issues it would become pretty clear 
that the problem is a a lack of policing. The problem is, um, or rather, the solution is that we need more policing to help Black lives, not the other way around. And so you have this professional media class and these journalists who went to Columbia University or Yale, they're indoctrinated by this ideology. They have certain incentives to tell certain stories. Not to say there aren't certain individuals in these organizations which are good. There are a couple of journalists at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic that actually write about these issues. But by and large, they're totally ignoring these issues because of political correctness. And that's why 20-year-old Rabarora living in small town Chilliwack can actually write about these issues and also interview um, people in these communities in Minneapolis. I've interviewed a few people, and, and they happen to be black, by the way, and I, and I highlight that because the idea of like, we need more police, we need more police is like some sort of white trope, but it's totally not true. I've interviewed many people uh, in Minneapolis in disadvantaged black communities, and they're like, it is catastrophic here. You call the police, they come an hour later, carjackings are skyrocketing. Uh, we can't sleep at night because gun, um, gunshots are being fired every five minutes. And it, it, it's absolute uh, it, it's absolute insanity there. And so I, I try to highlight these issues and actually do what a journalist's job is. It is to uplift the voice of the voiceless, which has kind of been my mission. And people can read my writing on what's happened in Minneapolis and other cities in City Journal, Quillette, and the New York Post. But yeah, that's kind of been my journey over the past years, actually writing about violent crime and homicide um, because no other journalist is willing to cover this issue. Yeah, and as I understand it, and you alluded to this earlier, it's not like, it's not black people in these communities who are demanding to abolish the police or to defund the police. I was listening to... um, Barry Weiss's interview with Andrew Yang recently, and and he was saying just that, you know, like he goes to these communities and he talks to these people, just like you're talking to these people in these communities. The narrative coming from these activists who are, you know, elites, right? Like they're middle or upper class, they're overeducated, they're living in urban centers, is that, you know, we have to abolish the police or defund the police because of racism, because, you know, that's they're sort of speaking as though they're speaking on behalf of black people or POCs, as they like to call them, as though, you know, there's this monolith. Everybody who isn't, who doesn't like look like me. <laughs> I, exact I, same. I, I hate I hate that term so much. POC. Yeah. That is the stupidest term ever invented. You're 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 grouping such a diverse population like like what what similarity do I have with somebody from Nigeria or somebody from Egypt or somebody from South Africa, like what similarity do I have with them that you wouldn't? Whereas you wouldn't be their category, you're white versus POC. Somehow I'm in closer proximity to somebody from Tunisia or Algeria, but, but you're not because you're white. But it's like, no, like you, you could relate to them. Like it's the human experience is universal, right? That's kind of one of the things you learn as you go deeper into spirituality too, with meditation and psychedelics. It's like, we're all connected. We're not we're not as stratified and as divided along these stupid, uh, uh, you know, superficial lines along race and ideology and where we came from and what we believe. It's like we're all in this together. And the human experience is not exclusive, like certain kinds of certain kinds of prejudice or emotions or difficult experiences or biases are not exclusive to one group or the other. It, it's something that's much more universal. It permeates kind of all of uh, 
human existence and and we should focus on that rather than focusing on all these various ways that we actually uh, diverge from one another mm. um somebody in the comments asks uh what do you think of the idea of redirecting some some of the money that would have gone to police budgets for social supports social pro- slash social programs instead is that a bad idea yeah that's a good question and I, I've looked at this question pretty carefully um, the there are there are a few problems with that idea um, for, first problem is is that police budgets in general don't get a lot of money like you have especially over the past year we've seen various defunding efforts and F and you've seen a lot of officers leave the force. And so there's a recruitment crisis right now where there aren't enough officers in, in major American cities and they're looking for officers, but they can't find any because it's so disincentivized. Now people who maybe might've would have become officers are like, holy shit, like this is the career I want to get into where I could get into an interaction with a black suspect and make the right move. And I'll be tarred as a racist and attacked by the media. Like that's a scary place to be in. So so there's a recruitment crisis and there's a retirement crisis. Um, and that's, by the way, exacerbated over the past few months. And I, I just had an article that dropped today in City Journal about vaccine mandates being opposed in being imposed on police departments across the U.S. Um, and we, we can maybe talk about that after if you want. But in terms of that question, um, police departments already don't have like these massive budgets that people think they do. Um, and so you're, you're dealing with limited resources and, and you're dealing with historic levels of violence right now. So to take away money from them and give it to social services, which don't work that well, by the way, anyways, like in New York City, like a tremendous amount of money goes to social services. And the idea to give them more money, like if like that would not really solve the problem of crime um you know violent crime in places like new york and chicago what you need is more officers because that that is the most effective um antidote to crime that is out of control is to have more officers on the beat because um and and that doesn't even necessarily mean more incarceration too like if you have you know in one neighborhood if you have five police officers and you're having you know high levels of crime if you increase that to let's say 15 officers that actually deters individuals from committing more crime and being caught by the police this the just police presence has a tremendous positive impact in terms of reducing crime because if you're somebody who's involved in gang activity and you're seeing officers at every corner you're obviously not going to commit more crime right so we need more police officers and we need better funding for police this is sort of considered now a controversial idea but so many officers deal with highly stressful situations and they have PTSD and uh, Rick Doblin, founder of MAPS, the, the big psychedelic organization in the U.S., like he's doing work with like giving MDMA therapy to police officers who are traumatized and living in places like Chicago where you're daily or weekly dealing with um, these very difficult traumatic situations where you don't know if you're going to die or if you're going to make it. Right. And so we need more funding to invest in mental health for police officers um, and also not, you know, wear them out. When you have limited resources, you tend to overburden um, the resources and the officers you have. And so you need more officers so you can have 
more rest because you see in a lot of high crime areas, police officers who are working double shifts, triple shifts because there's a lack of police officers. So they're stressed, they're overburdened, they're dealing with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we need more resources to, to you know, meditation therapy, MDMA therapy is immensely uh, uh, therapeutic for uh, soldiers and police officers. Um, and I so, think so more yeah. training, right? Like I think that, yes, yeah. that you actually need to put that what would help would be to put more money into training and like um, to, oh God, I've forgotten the term, but you know, to diffuse these stressful situations, right? Because you're dealing, you're, as you said, you're dealing with these highly stressful situations and you want to avoid anybody getting shot or hurt. And so I think that one solution would be to put more funding into that kind of training. I read about um, jujitsu training, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, which would be really useful, like just in terms of avoiding, again, like gun violence, where obviously it's likely that somebody might get killed. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. That, yeah, I was just going to say that too. More training is immensely helpful. De-escalation techniques. De-escalation, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, it's it's unclear. Like, if you were to implement, if you were to implement more de-escalation training on a police department, is that going to help the problem? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it may not even have a significant impact. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. willing to bet that it. I'm willing to bet that it will. But it's possible too. You're still going to have. You're still going to have police shootings. You're you're not going to eradicate police violence as long as you don't eradicate uh, street violence. Well, when yeah, that, somebody's shooting at you. The cop is going to shoot yeah. back so they don't get killed or somebody this else. Is, this, is a, this is a utopian idea of we're going to get rid of police violence. We're going to get rid of police killings. It's like, no, you're not. Uh, unless unless you want to, um, you know, abolish the police, get rid of them. And then you're going to have thousands more black people die of violence every year. I mean, that's the alternative. That's what happened in, um, well, that was the crisis that was averted recently in Minneapolis. There, they recently had the elections, and there was a ballot measure to uh, dismantle the police and have it be run by local city councilors who are all leftists, democratic socialists. And they wanted to, and, and they were really kind of sly, misleading um, with the way they were presenting this uh, proposal. Um, it was called Yes for Minneapolis. And the idea was to dismantle the police department and give greater control to the community. But really, there was so much radical stuff that was kind of tucked underneath it. And they wanted to strike the minimum amount of officers in the police department. And so there was a lot of fluidity, a lot of variability within this plan that they had. And that was that's really dangerous because because they weren't saying they weren't saying we're not like they were saying we're not going to get rid of all police officers. We're still going to have police officers, but we're going to have you know, more social services, you know, more mental health responders responding to crime. But the problem was, is that you already had lost about 300 officers, 200 or 300 officers in Minneapolis. Um, So the idea that you would somehow, um, you know, reduce police violence, um, or that you would in any way improve the lives of ordinary black people by uh, um, significantly reducing the police department and having more mental health responders it, that's an absolutely crazy idea. And it was initially, it was like support. It was uh 50, 50 in the city. One poll showed before the election uh, for and against this ballot measure. And then I, I did a bit of writing about this. 
Um, and enough people were warned and were apprehensive about the uncertainty of this measure that they voted against it, 56 to 44, I believe. And you saw overwhelmingly black neighborhoods um, voted against this measure in majority, whereas you had the urban white neighborhoods, uh, people in those communities, they um, had higher rates of support for this measure at the ballot box, which just illustrates the disparity in uh, uh, in support of these radical criminal justice measures, which just aren't popular in high crime communities, regardless of race. It's so interesting because it's, you know, it completely contradicts the preferred narrative of all these progressives in Canada and in the U.S. who are posting or who were last year posting black squares and taking photos of themselves at BLM protests and posting them on Instagram and demanding to abolish the police and going on and on about, I don't know, you know, supporting black owned businesses, all those things that white people primarily, um, you know, where I lived in Vancouver, were promoting people who were totally out of touch with what's actually going on in these communities, what's going on in the U.S., And I think, you know, people in Canada do this a lot. I don't know if you've noticed this, but they tend to really enjoy speaking about what's going on in other places that they've never been before and that they have zero connection to in a variety of ways, you know, in terms of things like race and racism, but also in terms of things like COVID. You know, I noticed this when, like, I left Vancouver in... January to come to Mexico and you know people wanted to people back in Vancouver wanted to tell me what was going on where I was living with COVID in Mexico and I had come here and it was almost as though COVID didn't exist you know like people weren't wearing masks people weren't social distancing nobody was scared of COVID at all you know we were just all operating as normal we were all still like packed into bars and talking and sharing food and sharing drinks and, you know, people shared cigarettes and like we weren't doing any and everything was fine and it was great and we're happy and free. And people in Vancouver, you know, I got some like shamey messages from friends acting like I was coming here and like colonizing Mexico. Like I was poisoning all these poor Mexicans with my COVID germs. I mean, I didn't have COVID, so it doesn't make any sense to begin with. And I was like, you know, you you have this narrative and you have no idea what you're talking about. And it's because you're so privileged. I I don't like that term because it's not, no, me it doesn't really work in most contexts. There's no just like, this is privilege and this is not privilege. Like things are not as black yeah. and white as that usually. But, you know, it's because they exist in this bubble of people who are just like them, you know, relative elites, overeducated primarily white people living in an urban center. And they're also, because of COVID, even more so because they're just online and they're not engaging with real people in the real world. They're just reading their Facebook feed. They're just like, they're they're making, they're, they're coming up with all their ideas about the world around them based on what the algorithm mm. tells them. Yeah. Yeah. To, to me, one of the perfect examples showcasing the disparity in how progressives view the world versus how actual, you might say, marginalized people, people in conditions that are uh, economically bereft with, you know, various social 
issues, lack of proper education, um, crime that's out of control. Like people who live in these communities, they they don't they don't have the same problems that people who are on Twitter all day who write for the New York Times. Like the, the perfect example of this was when um, like just, just the difference here that I'm going to tell you about where. At the New York Times, uh, the Tom Cotton op-ed, if you remember, when he was calling for, hey, we need the National Guard to come in to break down these riots, right? Totally, like, innocuous view. I mean, you can even disagree with it, potentially, but, like, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. And, and I, would, I would agree with that, especially given the amount of damage by the, that's been done, economic damage, that still hasn't been recovered in inner-city communities, by the way, the amount of damage done to property, in, in Minneapolis as well, like you had a homeless shelter, um, a, a a youth center for for marginalized youth to come in to get after school care that was burned down in Minneapolis. No one's talking about this because no one gives a shit. Um, people just care about microaggressions on Twitter. But but you had that op-ed, and after that um, there was this revolt on Twitter. If you remember, you're not on Twitter, which sucks. Tears, <laughs> but, but but on Twitter, I don't know if, if you heard about this, but there was that uh, revolt from the New York Times staffers who were they were trending on Twitter because they were saying this puts our lives at risk, like minority New York Times staffers, and they were like, yeah. this op-ed um, has to be uh, what am I looking for? Revoked. This this has to be um, condemned. And you know wh- why was this allowed to be published in the first place? And and you had this incredible amount of outrage among activists and people writing for the New York Times. But recently, I, I was reading, I, I wrote about this, uh, about one of these cases in Minneapolis, where the crime is so out of control, homicides last year rose like 60%, and they ro- they're rising like another 10, 20% right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you have community members who recently signed a petition calling for the Minneapolis governor to um, bring the National Guard in their communities because crime is out of control. And they're like, we're, we're, afraid, we're afraid to send our kids to school. We're hearing gunshots every night. It's absolutely crazy. Cops, we call them. They don't come. And so there's another case of this in Chicago, too, with a recent woman who is, again, black. She's not a white supremacist, whose daughter was killed by a stray bullet. And she's like, we need the National Guard to come in here. The police just can't do enough. We need the best, most robust, powerful law enforcement response here because violence brazen violence is just out of control it's happening everywhere and little is being done by our democratic officials to actually help us out here and so just kind of picture this juxtaposition of like just writing about calling the national guard to break up riots prompts this outrageous response of like no this is like such an evil white supremacist idea to support the national guard and bring them into quell protests whereas overwhelmingly black inner city community members are literally begging in this community letter that was written. They're begging to bring the national guard because quote, the bleeding won't stop in their communities right now. And so mm-hmm. like, that's kind of just shows like in the progressive world where just articulation of ideas is considered violence. Words are violence, microaggressions, a, a difference of opinion is it's considered to be violence using the wrong pronouns having the wrong ideas is violence but in these communities violence is violence actual yeah. violence is when you have um um you have three kids under the age of 10 who get shot and killed within one week in minneapolis like that is real violence not 
whatever stupid microaggression that that somebody directed toward you on Twitter. Yeah, and uh, somebody, and I didn't know about this, but someone in the comments just said, Democrats in California brought in the National Guard in response to protests. Um, Last year? I don't know. I just asked him which protests he was talking about. But, I mean, it it just goes to show, I mean, there's just so much hypocrisy around these responses. Um, You know, as I mentioned earlier, in Canada, the the BLM protests were fine, but the protests, the freedom rallies were not okay. Um, And that's been true all around the world. You know, the protests that um, were opposed to lockdowns and vaccine mandates and things like that are are dangerous and have to be shut down by any means possible. But, you know, these protests are politically correct. So it's okay, even though the the BLM riots, you know, they cause so much actual violence and destruction and um yeah and the and the cops didn't do anything about those no. those riots. Yeah. Speaking of protests though, I don't know if you want to segue into COVID stuff which yeah, I can I can start it. rant I can start ranting for hours about COVID now. This is the new topic which again there's <laughs> a de- there's a deficiency of real journalism that's again where a twenty-year-old guy living in his mom's basement, although mm-hmm. finally escaped his mom's basement, is in beautiful LA for a while. We can talk about that too. Hopefully, hopefully for a longer while than I'm anticipating. Um, but uh, in terms of protests, like you're seeing a lot of protests in Europe right now, which is getting coverage here and there, but not as much coverage as maybe it should. Mm-hmm. But in it- Italy, France, Switzerland. Austria right now. I don't know if you heard what's happening in Austria. Yeah. The uh, the lockdown for the unvaccinated. You can only leave. Super sketchy. At least you can leave for essentials. But I mean, you can leave for work. Uh, you can leave to actually uh, for for exercise and for getting groceries. But no leisure activities allowed. It's it's basically effectively house partial house arrest is what's happening there. And uh, uh, lo- local officials in Berlin, Germany. They were like, oh, this is a good idea. They're doing it too now. And the Czech Republic, they're adopting that. Um, and recently you had the small country, uh, Slovenia. Um, mm. they, they adapted this measure where, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but it was, you had to provide a vaccine card to refill gas in your vehicle. <laughs> but the, but That's they, insane. There was so much backlash to that that they backtracked afterwards. They were like, okay, no, 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 we can't do this. But, like, just the fact that they tested that, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, hold on. We have to press the brakes here because this is getting out of control. And thankfully, yeah. there were protests and backlash, and they back they backed down a little bit. But still, like, what you're seeing in Europe and certain countries is absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's really, like, you can't operate in society unless you have the vaccine. Um, yeah, what I when I heard about Austria, I just thought, like, this is terrifying, they're not letting you leave the house unless you have the vaccine. And, you know, the vaccine, you can talk more about this too, but the vaccine makes no sense, right? Because if you, you know, if you have the antibodies, if you have immunity, then you don't need the vaccine. And the vaccine apparently doesn't stop the spread. 
Um, it doesn't even prevent you from getting COVID. As I understand it, the, what it does actually do is it prevents you from getting very severe symptoms. So it sounds like it's useful for people who are vulnerable, you know, people who are older, um, people who might have issues with their immune system, so on and so forth. But that's not how they're treating the vaccine. They're mandating it for everyone, including kids now, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, with kids, it's um, what am I thinking of? Yes, I can give you a few examples here in Canada. I'm writing about this right now. The Ontario Youth Hockey League, biggest hockey league in Ontario, where I don't know how many hockey players there are, but you know how popular hockey is for young males in their youth. Canada, I never played yeah. hockey. I, I, I played soccer. I was always a soccer guy. And people were always like, dude, you got you to gotta man up and play the real sport. Like hockey, that's where the physical contact is, not you pussies kicking around a soccer ball with shin pads on. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I was always like, fuck you, shut up. Soccer's better. Soccer is a universal sport. It's a worldwide language. You can play it anywhere. But in Ontario right now, this is, this is fucking crazy. You, in order to play in the Ontario Youth Hockey League, you have to be vaccinated 12 and up. Like that is insane that they're doing that to young people who have zero risk, basically zero risk of COVID, more risk of driving out on the highway, more risk of getting the flu or pneumonia or other diseases. Um, like or even, maybe getting hurt playing hockey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. I, I didn't even think about that. Good point. But even mm-hmm. like like parents who are vaccinated, they're also skeptical. They're like, why should my kid get an experimental vaccine when First of all, there's no long-term data, but and also lower risk of COVID. Like the risk, this is another thing, which which I think this is why a lot of people read my stuff is is I I have a good understanding of statistics, which I, I try to weave into my articles, either when it comes to police brutality or writing about income differentials between white people and minorities, and and showing the differences numerically with COVID. Like the risk is. The risk is really exaggerated in people's minds and the risk is stratified by age and the risk like the risk jumps pretty significantly by age. Like if you compare somebody who's like an unvaccinated 20 year old has lower risk of covid of serious covid symptoms than a vaccinated 45 or 50 year old. There are studies showing this. there's an article in uh, New York magazine, which is a liberal publication that actually talks about this. Um, and even like uh, an unvaccinated 10 or 15 year old has lower risk of COVID than a vaccinated 30 year old. So, so these, these are huge differences that no one wants to talk about. And instead there's like this, there's this religious fervor to vaccinate everybody. And if you're, uh, even if you have like a nuanced perspective, even if you're like pro-vax, like I am, like I, I told my grandparents to get vaccinated because my, my grandpa, you know, he's he's pretty overweight. My grandma is too. And there are multiple medications. They have heart issues, like so many different problems. And I'm like, I want to see you guys live as, as long as you can live. And COVID is a, a significant threat to people who are old, overweight, not super healthy, like my grandparents, you know, definitely to always trying to tell the grandpa to, you know, get to the gym, exercise more, eat, eat your greens. And he's always eating shit food, which which sucks. But um, but for them, I told them to get vaccinated and, and then that was, and they did it and I'm proud of them. 
But for somebody like me, a 20-year-old, or even somebody who's 30 or 40 who has a healthy weight, has a strong immune system, who's been supplementing, like I'm a huge advocate of zinc and vitamin D, probably because I'm influenced by, like from the start, listening to a lot of Joe Rogan, who was like talking about take your zinc, take your vitamin D. Mm -hmm. And for me, especially at the start of the pandemic, like I started to take more care of my health Mm -hmm. um, because of this. And I'm been supplementing with vitamin D and zinc and quercetin, which helps activate zinc, which is very important. And in general, just making lifestyle changes, which are really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but but th- this mandate stuff is, is crazy. And it's happening here in L.A., actually, where I am. Um, they're about to mandate. I forget when it goes into effect. I think it's December. But everybody in Los Angeles County, all students above the age of 12 have to be vaccinated in order to go to school which mm. is un- unbelievable. It's like, I, I'm, I cannot believe that that is a policy you would ever want to implement on any but, young population. Well, it doesn't even seem like it should be legal. It seems unconstitutional. Yeah. Like that's access yeah. to education, right? And I mean, so do you know, have the vaccine mandates accomplished anything in terms of the spread of COVID? Um. Uh, so you you could make an argument vaccine mandates have increased vaccination by forcing people with with their jobs on the line to get vaccinated. So I know people who are like, I don't want to get vaccinated, but I have to feed my five year old kid. And, and if I don't get vaccinated, then we're going to go hungry. We're going to go homeless. So, I mean, if, if that's a win for the medical establishment, then OK, that's a win. You're forcing people to do things with their body that are irreversible that they don't want to do. And that arguably has um, that. Well, that definitely has an impact on the spread of COVID higher vaccination rates. But that but that benefit, we know for a fact, indisputable, is short lived. Like the vaccine effectiveness against infection wanes by like 50 percent, 55 percent at the six month mark and continues to trend downwards. So after about seven or eight months, you're basically at the same level of uh, uh, risk of getting infected as an unvaccinated person. A vaccinated person after, let's say, 10 months is at the same, virtually the same risk of getting infected with COVID as an unvaccinated person. So in terms of the spread of COVID, after so about about four or five, six months, seven months, you're going to limit the spread of COVID with higher vaccination rates. But after that, you're going to have more waves. You're seeing this in Israel, in the UK, um, which were heavily vaccinated countries that started vaccinating a bit earlier. You have now this, these devastating new waves that are coming up, which, which shouldn't be surprising because we know um, that vaccines are really are highly ineffective in combating infection. We know the, the durability of protection against severe illness is robust and the durability for protection against death excuse me is robust but otherwise in terms of stopping the spread of covid we know there's not an argument for vaccine mandates after six months seven months you're you're basically at at ground zero and so it makes absolutely no sense to mandate vaccines to to stop the spread of covid because the vaccine just can't do that you can't expect it to do that so yeah so why do you think they're doing it? Like, what's behind these mandates that, you know, as you've explained, don't really make any sense? Especially, I mean, I wouldn't support the the mandate for anyone, to be honest, but certainly not for, for kids. 
yeah. So what's the rationale behind mandates? Um, well, the rationale behind vaccines we know is to prevent serious illness or death. And there's a, a corollary benefit, you could argue, of, of um, preventing hospitals from being overburdened. Mm-hmm. So, like, if, if, you, if you encourage more older people, well, this is where you get into the age stratification, which nobody talks about. People, people throw around these numbers on Twitter, like a lot of journalists, like, oh, um, there are, you know, 90% of, of uh, COVID deaths are among the unvaccinated, so get vaccinated. There was figures from BC, where, uh, where, my, where my family lives, where it showed, like, 90, 80% of the COVID deaths are among the unvaccinated, so get vaccinated. You know, that's the message. But then you, you just have to, like, scroll a little bit down and look into the age stratification. And it's like 70 to 80 percent of those people are over the age of 60 mm-hmm. who, di- who, who died. So once you eliminate that, you have a, a small percentage of people like under the age of 60 in between like 10 and 60 who died of COVID. And you can even parse that down and you're left with people really in like f- between like 40 to 60 and they don't have they didn't show data for this, but it is almost certainly the case without a doubt that those people were, were severely ill anyways and had underlying comorbidities, serious health conditions, obesity, diabetes, heart conditions, etc. So 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 like when people show these unvaccinated numbers and they're like, Yeah, vaccinated, it's like, okay, hold on. People let's people who are over sixty who are unvaccinated. Yeah, yeah, they should get vaccinated. And by the way, vaccination rates for people over 60, over 65 are pretty high in Canada and the U.S. And anywhere in certain communities, maybe where it isn't that high, I'm all for encouraging those communities to get vaccinated to prevent um, to prevent COVID death and severe illness. But when it comes to younger people or healthy people, it, it really... It really doesn't make sense. And I've interviewed experts on this. I've interviewed epidemiologists from Harvard and Stanford that I trust. And I've, after interviewing them, I've included their quotes in my articles to kind of back up my opinion so people don't think I'm talking out of my ass about this stuff. But in terms of the rationale for vaccination, it it just seems to be like a a formation of a kind of religious ideology where it's like, you have, this is the way to protect yourself. So you got to do it. You got to read the Bible. You got to believe in Jesus. And if you don't, then you're a sinner, right? You got to take the vaccine. If you deny the vaccine, if you don't accept the vaccine as your savior, then you're a sinner. You're a horrible person. Then you're doomed to go to hell. Then you're killing other people. But if you take the vaccine, you care for your neighbor. You're a virtuous, ethically oriented human being. I think that that's a lot of uh, what this comes down to is these incentives that are also structurally placed by the medical establishment and big pharma that we know and and then also just people who just they they become very ideological about these really personal medical issues and therefore vaccinating absolutely everybody without considering nuance without considering individualized risk benefit uh calculations yeah i mean it seems like another way to virtue signal for people right it's it's to position yourself on this side of the the political spectrum, right? You know, like the good people, the progressive people, the leftists, you have to get a vaccine and anyone who doesn't get a vaccine is an anti-vaxxer and they're right wing. They probably love Trump. They're probably white supremacists. Like, it's so weird to me. 
how this has gotten all grouped together with all sorts of other things and that it's become such a, a false divide. And, you know, the people who are harping on the vaccine and supporting the vaccine mandates and saying that people who don't get vaccines are horrible people and even that they should die. Like I've seen plenty of people say that on Twitter. Um, you know, they, they don't seem to understand the vaccine themselves. And it's sort of weird to push something so hard when you don't really get it. Because if you say, well, you know, like this doesn't, it's not effective it doesn't stop the spread. Like it doesn't prevent you from getting COVID. Um, your kid's not at risk. And mm. so why? There, like, there's, why? There, there's one example I should, I just remembered one example I should give you. It was the, the Ottawa Senators hockey team. This was, this was just in the news. The team is 100%, 100% vaccinated, but 40% of the team just tested positive for COVID because of some outbreak. And it's like, that, that's not surprising. Nobody should be ever surprised by that news. But that shows the, this whole mandate idea is stupid because people are vaccinated and in, in after a certain amount of months are just as easily to get infected with, with COVID than, than people who are unvaccinated. So why do you think so many people are going along with it? Because to me, like, it's not necessarily that I was or am concerned about getting the vaccine myself it's more that it's that i well it's that i oppose the mandates you know i think people should have a choice and i think people should be able to make informed choices about their health and their bodies not be bullied or forced into making decisions about their health and bodies that they don't feel comfortable with um but like yeah i just i wonder why so many people, I mean, this is sort of a perpetual question for me in a variety of ways, but why people have no fight in them, why people aren't interested in having all the information before making a decision, and why people are behaving so hatefully around this issue. You know, to say something like, oh, well, if you're not getting vaccinated, I hope you get COVID and die. I mean, that's a really horrible thing to say. Like, what do you think has happened here? Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, basically what I said about this kind of uh, religiosity when it comes to vaccination, that seems to be an issue here. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of where I would go with that. But in terms of, I should also, if you don't mind, I want to make, I wanted to make a few uh, just points about like vaccination too, by the way, like this idea that vaccines are perfectly safe not true not everybody not it's not the same risk benefit calculation for everybody in some mm. cases for for some populations getting vaccinated versus getting infected with covid is a totally different cost benefit analysis and there are certain risks which nobody's really talking about or some people are and they're being excluded and marginalized like certain people in the medical community um, and I don't know how deep you want to go into this, but I mean, there, there's, there's a couple of things like there's myocarditis, which I don't know if you've heard about with, with young bit, males. Tell us about that. Yeah. I talked, I talked to Dr. Drew about this, which I know Megan, you've mm-hmm. probably heard about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I watched that. Yeah, yeah. 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 You saw the show. Yeah. With Dr. Drew, I talked about this in, in some depth, but, uh, basically there's a one in 5,000 chance for young males in between, let's say like 12 and 24 ish. In that range, there's a one in 5,000 chance of developing myocarditis, heart inflammation, 
from the vaccine. And and on an individual level, that may not seem like a big risk. That that, that should really depend on you. To me, that's that's too big of a risk because the risk of COVID of COVID the risk of COVID death is not one in five thousand. The risk of COVID death for let's say people like kids in between like let's say ten and like let's say between zero and ten, the risk of COVID death is too minuscule to calculate. It, it is infinitesimal, infinitesimally small uh, likelihood of dying from COVID. Whereas, whereas the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine is one in five thousand. As you get older, it it changes a little bit. So here I'm at twenty. Here, I, you know, we still don't have like proper numbers on this because this is still being learned in real time. So there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, which data set to look at, how to compare the numbers. But by my understanding, by my estimation, risk of myocarditis is higher uh, than the risk of COVID severe illness or death. And as a healthy young male, that's just not a risk that I want to take. It's not something um, like if I was obese, then I probably would get vaccinated. If I was super unhealthy or if I had like a lot of underlying health issues, then I probably would opt for the vaccine. But as a healthy male, um, I just feel like it's not something that I need to do. And by the way, the one in 5,000 number is verified by not one study, but several studies, France, U.S., and also there's specific data, which is really good, that comes out of Ontario, Canada, that gets updated every few weeks. And that shows like a one in 5,000 risk, roughly speaking. Some data sets show one in 4,000, others show like one in 7,000. One in 5,000 seems to be the rolling average. And when it comes to women, by the way, I have an article coming out on this, and this, this will interest you, Megan, as a classical feminist. Um, but with women... This is going to sound crazy to people who have never even heard of this. And and trust me, I, I fully understand this is going to sound really crazy. But just bear with me because I would not be saying this if I was not absolutely certain that this was actually a real issue. But there's actually articles in The Guardian and in The New York Times about this, by the way, that young women, a large percentage of young women are experiencing extreme disruptions in their menstrual cycles or horrible menstrual bleeding after the vaccine. Now, I don't know if you know anybody, Megan, about this. This seems to be younger women more so. And and I'll let you respond in a second. But I, I heard about this from a friend earlier on this summer. She told me about this after the vaccine that she had this like horrible bleeding that was going on for like days and she couldn't move for like a couple days. Like the pain was just so bad. And then I told her like, it's probably not the vaccine. Like there's probably something else going on. Like let's not jump to conclusions. And then another friend told me about this and then I heard about it from another young female friend. And then I started kind of asking around in other female circles that are in my orbit. And, it, and almost everywhere I asked, the response I got was like, oh, yeah, this happened to me. Or this happened to like five of my other girlfriends. And so I was like, holy shit, what's going on here? Why, why is this happening? And why is nobody talking about it? And um, I, I did some research. And this is an actual thing that's happening. There's an article in the New York Times that is saying this is an issue. Um, although the, the New York Times and The Guardian, they all, they've written about this. The Guardian did this article um, and it was by a, a feminist journalist that they have. And she was like, this is a real um, feminist issue that we should talk about. But then in all of these articles, they end up saying like, no, no, don't worry. There's no proven um, long-term uh, damage for women with the vaccine. So you should get vaccinated. 
Mm-hmm. Which, if I had to bet, I'd probably say that's that's true. I, I bet there's probably no damage. Well, how do they know? There's no long term. Exactly. Research. Yeah. I mean, if there is long term damage, by the way, that is a medical catastrophe that yeah. will take decades upon decades, if not a century, to recover. If yeah. if we stay here for a century, which I have doubts, by the way, I think I think Mars is the future with Elon Musk and Bezos and whatever. Um, but like, but like, if if that if that's true, then that's a concern. But regardless of long term, we know there's a short term risk here. It's reported in the New York Times. The, the article in the Guardian was reported on after the uh, the report the vaccine adverse reporting system in the UK was getting overwhelmed by these uh, uh, events reported by young women of like, holy shit, my period is off, or holy shit, this this bleeding is horrible after the vaccine. What is going on? And so now the national, the the NIH, NIH or NHI, the NHS? national. NHS. Wait. No, 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 no. The National Health Institute in the U.S. Oh, okay. I don't know. In- Institute of Health or Health Institute, whatever. NIH or NHI. Um, th- they have actually now funded a, a research project to actually look into this problem. They've d- they've dedicated scientists and actual resources to look into this problem. What's causing this problem? Um, we don't even know. Like with, with myocarditis, I gave you the one in five thousand risk, which we know. With this, we don't even know. Like, based on what I'm hearing anecdotally, anecdotally, I hear far more things about menstrual bleeding in young women than I do with myocarditis. So if I had to bet, it, it would probably be low. It would probably be a higher risk than one in five thousand. Like it'd probably be like a one in two thousand or something like that. Whatever it is, but it's it's definitely a real risk for young women. And I've interviewed so many so many young women about this. And the fact that this isn't being talked about, and instead they're just clamping down on more vaccine mandates without actually considering this real problem on, in women and men is just absurd to me. It's, it's totally insane. And it's yeah. dangerous, too. Medically dangerous. For sure. Someone in the comments says it's NIH. But anyway, I – yeah, like, I mean, I – you know, it's funny because I actually don't know very many people who've gotten the vaccine because where I am in Mexico, nobody cares. <laughs> like, a lot of people don't want to get the vaccine. I mean, a lot of the kinds of people that I'm around here, so the kinds of people who would leave the U.S. or Canada during COVID to come to Mexico are the kinds of people who didn't want to lose their freedoms and constitutional rights and were opposed to all these measures. But also, you know, the the Mexicans that I know here also are not, they don't care and they're not that interested in the vaccine either. And then there's all these other weird factors like the vaccines that you can access in Mexico are the vaccines that aren't accepted for travel into the Canada and the U.S. Obviously, you know, maybe because Pfizer's not making money off of it or something. But in any case, I I sort of vaguely heard about what you're talking about, but I don't know anyone personally that that's happened to. But again, I don't I really don't know that many people here who are getting the vaccine. But it is, you know, it's shocking to me that they would acknowledge that this is an issue and a problem and then still push the vaccine, say like, okay, well, all this stuff is going on, but go get the vaccine anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like this this tunnel vision where they focus in on get vaccinated. It prevents death. It prevents serious illness. You should get it. It's important. And that's kind of their focus. And this like dawned on me when I interviewed a recent medical expert who I won't name, who's pretty high up. Like he's considered a, a professional you should trust. And he's got the lab coat on. He's wearing his tie and he's got his degree from Harvard or whatever. And I asked him about this, like, hey, you know, this has been like verified. There's an issue here with menstrual bleeding with women with the vaccine. What's going on? And he's like, what? He's like, I never heard about that. And, and he was like, no, I, like, what, what are you talking about? And like almost kind of like 
like kind of uh, implying that maybe I'm like some bizarre conspiracy theorist listening to Alex Jones or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. This is in the New York Times. This is an actual thing. And he didn't even know. And he, and he was a supporter of vaccine mandates. And so that just shows like there's so much information out there. A lot of scientists, you know, working for CNN or within like the medical community, you know, they can't look at absolutely every single study and every single risk and understand everything. Scientists are not these like unchallengeable, infallible authorities that you can't question or debate or discuss. These people are human, too. They have limited understandings of things, too. Not saying you should listen to some conspiracy theory guy on the street about why the vaccines are going to kill you in five years or why Bill Gates wants to depopulate the planet. But you, you should be skeptical and critical of what you hear and, and fact check that yourself and have a dialogue with your physician, by the way, although some physicians tend to be a little weird. But thankfully, I have a good kind of consulting physician in Ontario. His name is Mike Hart. He's really good. Um, and he's really into psychedelics as well, which was great. But like with him too, like it's it's all about individualized medicine, right? It's about like for this patient, these are the risks. Then you're supposed to recommend what they should do based on that risk. Mm-hmm. You know, if a patient comes in with obesity, they're unvaccinated, and then their lifestyle is super shitty. It's like okay, number one, get the vaccine for sure because you don't want to get these serious symptoms. And number two, you know, change up your lifestyle, start working out more. But a healthy 20-year-old guy who comes in like me telling me to get the vaccine, it's like, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a favorable calculation. And, and by the way, I should also just mention quickly, like other countries, like the, the science does not change from country to country. It's the same human beings. It's the same vaccine or it could be different vaccines, but it's, it's the same COVID science, the same COVID risk, but the, the policy measures are totally different. So in France, Finland, Sweden... Denmark, Norway, and all those countries and a few others, they have suspended use of the Moderna vaccine in people under the age of 30. Hmm. Uh, in some of those countries, it's, they did it uh, under 18. I believe Denmark and Sweden were under 18. Iceland just suspended it outright. France and Finland, I believe, they recommended against Moderna. So others have suspended it completely for people under 30. And other countries, they've recommended against it because... Um, there's a higher reported uh, risk of myocarditis with Moderna versus Pfizer. Okay, so so this what this shows more than anything is, number one, vaccines aren't risk-free. And number two, this is an experiment that's being conducted in live time. So we're learning new things on the go. We're learning about myocarditis. Nobody knew about myocarditis a year ago or like right when the vaccines were launched because the trials were so small. That's the other thing with child vaccination, by the way. It's like the trials are like, like one of the trials was like 3,000 kids that they did it with. And so they were like, yeah, you know, there was minimal risk associated with the vaccine um, in this trial of 3,000 kids. But it's like you can't detect a real risk if you just do 3,000 because we know myocarditis is about one in 5,000. So how in the hell could you give the green light to the vaccine for kids uh, 5 to 12 based on a trial with 3,000 kids? You need longitudinal data. This is basic like statistics 101. And this again goes back to the reason why, you know, like it's not that I'm some like great intellectual that people should read me. It's like I have basic understanding of statistics and facts and, and calculating risk, which is important. Um, and so, and so with, again, with the countries, I think that just shows like it's the same science, 
but different policy measures. Other countries are like, whoa, 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 Moderna, let's back off here. Pfizer's a bit safer. Whereas in the U.S. and Canada, um, actually in Canada, in Ontario, the government actually said for young people, they recommended against Moderna because of the myocarditis issue. Um, but otherwise, a lot of people don't even know this information, and so they just sign up to get jabbed. A lot of young people, like the vaccine clinics are in my brother's high school and other high schools in my city, and teachers are telling kids, like, get vaccinated, get vaccinated, and they can just go sign a fucking form, which, by the way, guarantees vaccine companies to be totally unliable for any vaccine-related injuries, by the way. Um, and so you just have kids just signing up for vaccination, not knowing any risk. There's like, Teachers are telling them. Teachers are all, you know, woke ideology, indoctrinated, you know, BLM supporting, you know, like my brother's English teacher early on, she was like, you know, you know, everybody write down your pronouns first day of English class, and then like teaching them these like messages about racial oppression. And, and so there's like this echo chamber and all these like these, these, these systems of indoctrination just get repeated in, you know, in the racial realm and political discourse and now with vaccines. But with vaccines, we know there's a lot of danger here with, with younger people. I know I get in a lot of shit for saying that even, but the, the danger at minimum, the danger is not zero. And at the very least, you can say the 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 young people have potentially more to lose with the vaccine and less to gain with the mm -hmm. vaccine than older people do. So that should radically reorient the way we think about child vaccination and for vaccinating anybody under the age of 30. It should be based on individual risk benefit propositions, not based on these mass like religious decrees by fucking Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Joe Rogan, who's like, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. And Rogan's like, no, but what about, uh, did you see that podcast with, with yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, the, I mean, that yeah, was yeah. a great episode because he challenged him yeah. on it, that in such an effective way. But yeah, you're right. Like it's like the blanket mandates make zero sense and people should be making individual choices about what's best for them based on their particular circumstances. Um, I want to talk to you about specifically what's happening in Canada and BC right now. So, okay, so there's provincial va vaccine passports, which I think are like so crazy because they're different from province to province. So I was just like, like if you go from BC to Alberta, do you then have to get like an Alberta passport also? Like, how does this all work? Do you know? Um. Well, they're actually looking to federalize the vaccine passports to have one universal system, which, by the way, is just even worse. It's more control. They want to have a federalized system and eventually a transnational system where you have your vaccine card from Canada and it applies to Italy or Switzerland. It's recognized there. That, that, that's, that's what we're headed towards, by the way, is a global infrastructure, this global vaccine verification system where you can effectively divide the fucking globe into half vaccinated versus unvaccinated really uh really just a government overreach in my opinion but um right now as far as i understand uh you can use your vaccine card from bc and other places in canada okay. as long as you just show it a lot of people too like if you just go to a restaurant um well it, it depends where you go i don't want to rat out i know there's individual places that i know of where they're like, we're fucking against this, you know, come on in. Other places that are like, no, 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 we're checking. Otherwise, you can't come. And that's really been unfortunate for me is like in BC, like indoor dining has been just like not an option for me anymore. We're going to bars with friends. Can't do that anymore. It's just really like the social life has been 
compromised. Uh, I'm in LA right now, which at least is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting being here. I came here to do the Adam Carolla show and to do Dr. Drew. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm here in LA and to be honest, it's more relaxed here than Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Like restaurants are not actually rigorously enforcing vaccine mandates. Whereas in Vancouver, they literally are like, you have to show your pass. Whereas here, I've been to places where nobody gives a shit. You just go and you eat, which is fine. I think it might be due to parts like there's a there's a big Hispanic population in L.A. And I love I love Mexican food, like Peruvian cuisine and stuff like that. And a lot of those places, too, they don't give a shit. And you just go and eat. right? You mm-hmm. just have fun. They, they don't care. Maybe that's been a factor. But other places, too, like they, they haven't been checking Yeah, I got the impression that things were a lot worse in Canada because I've been to the States um, a couple times recently in August and September, and it didn't seem like that rigorous there in terms of checking for, you know, some places checked, some places didn't, some places didn't seem to care. Um, And... It seems like it's a lot more intense in Vancouver, as I understand it. You have to have this app thing on your phone, and they scan your code and all of this stuff to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, here in LA, it's cool. I'm gonna be do gonna be seeing Tim Dillon at the Comedy Store next uh, week. It's gonna be fun. He's gonna be back here. Um, but uh, in terms of why I'm here, it was to do a few shows and also just to kind of get a break from the insanity in Canada. Like my yeah. social life was so restricted and most, and a lot of friends were gone to, to school in like Calgary or Kelowna or other places. It just and seems so, horrible there. It seems like you can't have any fun. Yeah, I mean, it just seems I, like I wasn't having, I wasn't having any fun. So, yeah. and here I'm actually having fun, even though LA is as blue as you can really get, you know, minus like New York city maybe, or, or, uh, Washington DC, San Francisco, but San Francisco, Portland, Portland's turning into a hellhole as Seattle. Well, you know, continu- yeah. continues to, but yeah, LA, LA is good. I like it here. And, um, I'm, you know, I was, I just extended my stay because of, uh, if you've heard what's happening in Vancouver, I think I texted you about this. The flooding, uh, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard. Yeah. It seems like, it's, crazy. No, like it's actually like catastrophic in many yeah. places, like close to home actually. Well, yeah, uh, like not in like downtown Vancouver, but yeah, yeah. Like a community, like there's a community called Yero. I don't know if you've heard of that, close to Abbotsford. Mm. Um, I don't know if you know that area well. Have you been to Abbotsford or Harrison, Agassiz? I don't know that Chihuahua? area well, but I did. Yeah, I read that in Abbotsford and then up near Merritt, I think they were evacuating. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy in Merritt, so, yeah. And and a, a community, it's called Yero, which is like in between Chilliwack and Abbotsford. So that's like half an hour or 40 minutes away from where I live. They were, ent- they were entirely evacuated. And so some of my mom's friends, their relatives, like sisters, brothers, they are moving in with them in Chilliwack because Yarrow is evacuated. It's crazy. And like the neighborhood that I live in, the police just came out the other day and they were saying there might be water shortages. My mom was freaking out quite a bit. Then the gas pumps are out of gas, which is crazy. And the grocery stores are being emptied. There's massive lineups out there. Um, and what else? The schools are closed. And schools are actually being used as temporary uh, <clears throat> shelters for people who don't have a home. So they're sleeping in the high schools. My high school, 
people are sleeping there right now who've been evacuated. So the floods destroyed people's homes, and yeah. I know that they washed out some of the big highways. Like I think the Kukahala yeah. is not oh, yeah. usable. And also just the Highway One and um, okay. Highway One. That's uh, like connecting Vancouver to other places, Abbotsford, Chilliwack. Like if you're in Vancouver, you can't really move around in terms of getting on the highway and going farther out to the Fraser Valley. Huh. And so I, I just extended my stay um, and I'm going to be doing a few other things and just, yeah. So do you think you'll stay in Canada? I mean, beyond this situation with the flooding and I mean, there's, there's, you know, I don't know if you even can get home at this point. Um, but like in terms of the political situation in Canada, the vaccine mandates, the ongoing restrictions around COVID, the like lack of fun. Yeah. Well, this is my last trip to the U.S. because I'm unvaccinated, mm-hmm. and I like I'm I'm fucked both ways in many ways. Like if I if I were to go back to Canada and try to come now, because uh, with Trudeau, it's November 30th is the cutoff line to leave the country if you're unvaccinated. After November 30th, you can't leave the country if you don't have the vaccine. It's fuck, fucking crazy. But for Can Joe you drive Biden, across the border? No, no, no. Same, same thing. Vaccine. You're, you're fucking landlocked. You're, you're in Canadian prison. Um, and if you, and, and also with Biden's policy, his was November 8th. If you, you can't come to the U.S. after November 8th if you're unvaccinated. And so I just got here, by the way, November 7th, like the day before I just sneaked in. And so I was good to go because everything kind of happened last minute because my passport had to be renewed. And I got called on a few shows and I I was thinking whether I should go or not. And I just kind of made it the day before. If I was a day late, no, can't come in. And so I just got there a day before. And this is the last trip in the U.S. So I'm trying to just like maximize this trip as much, much as possible and meeting a lot of uh, American friends. I've I've already met a number of, of good friends, you know, people, journalists and stuff like that. And I'm going to be meeting more people and trying to do more shows. I've already done Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. Going to be doing Tim Pool probably soon. And I, I try. I, I emailed uh, Joe Rogan's producer too as well. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. But I'm I'm trying to you know m- make the most out of this trip because it might be my it probably is my last for for months. But honest to God, I feel like it might be years or even forever if I don't get the vax because they're not going to give up on control. And, and I mean, really the only hope is, you know, to abolish the mandates would be if, if DeSantis gets in, if, if he runs for the Republican party and he defeats Biden in what is it? 2024 mm-hmm. or, 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 but, it, but yeah, so that would be to get into the U S I'd have to wait till 2024 and in Canada too. The unfortunate thing is, is that the conservative party are a bunch of fucking pussies. They don't stand up for freedom. That's yeah. why I voted for. That's why I voted for PPC. Like yeah, even, me too. E- even like like Aaron O'Toole, who's such a fucking tool. He's such an idiot. I like, can't believe the conservative I, party hasn't opposed any of yeah. this stuff. I mean, they're just behaving like the liberal party, but like slightly more right yeah. on a few things. And it was like, but well, what are you for then? Like, we just have a p- bunch of parties that all support essentially the same thing. Like exactly. Like with the conservative party. Like, they're silencing individual uh, MPs who are speaking out. Like, the MP in my city in Chilliwack, Mark Strahl, he's anti-vaccine mandate. 
and he voiced some of these concerns. And I don't know if you know uh, Leslie and Lewis, the black female conservative who's oh, in the yeah. running. Oh yeah, 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 I do. I've heard she, of her, yeah. She's against vaccine she's mandates. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's good. I, I, I wish she would have gotten in. She would have been so much better. But, but she, she's against vaccine mandates, and um, I don't know the exact specifics of the, of the, how the, how the political system works. But basically, Aaron O'Toole has ensured those anti-mandate voices are, are in the fringes of the conservative party mm-hmm. and don't have the, the, the powerful uh, major platforms in parliament. So Mark Straw used to be pretty high up in the conservative party and playing a pretty integral role with certain legislative efforts. And Leslie and Lewis, from what I understand, was kind of in there too. But with Aaron O'Toole, he's kind of pushed those people to the side. There was an article in, I think, Global News that, that uh, talked about this. And so you have conservatives, certain conservatives who actually have reasonable principles who are now being sidelined by Aaron O'Toole, who's a total idiot, who in his speech when he lost, was just kept on going with this like weird um, modern and inclusive conservative party idea. Where he yeah. was like, in, in Canada... We're no not what, your dad's yeah. conservative party. We're not your grandfather's yeah. conservative We're yeah. this like, new, modern, liberal conservative party. It's like, we already and have like, a liberal yeah. party. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, in, and in his speech, he was like, I don't care what color you're from, all colors are welcome to my party. All genders, like, uh, or not all... He was like, everybody in the LGBTQ community, all races are welcome, as if, like, that needs to be said. Like, I don't think anybody black or brown or Hispanic Did anybody like, think anybody was yeah. excluded from the conservative party? Yeah. Why do you like, have to say that? That's fucking No Asians stupid. in the conservative party yeah. like, something to say. <laughs> it's, it's so stupid to say that. So stupid. It's insane. Yeah. So yeah. this is the world we live in, is where, where you have the people with the most power are the people who have the most unscientific, unreasonable, authoritarian, semi-tyrannical views and power and stranglehold over the culture and the way government is operating and so that's joe biden that's that's you know boris johnson the uk who's done a shitty job that's trudeau obviously and other european leaders and obviously cnn and the whole mainstream media apparatus who's in worship of these medical authorities whatever they say double mask no mask wear a mask you know you know when trump was speeding up the vaccine process you should have seen i talked to this to I talked about this with Dr. Drew. Everybody in the mainstream media was like, no, 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 Trump is speeding up the vaccine. We can't trust the vaccine. We shouldn't get it. And now they're like, no, no, no. If, if you're unvaccinated, you're a grandma killer. You suck. You're horrible. And so then you now you have like this, thankfully, it's like some bit of a alternate media response with Russell Brand, Joe Rogan. Yeah, Russell uh, Brand's doing really great yeah, stuff. Yeah, Ru- Russell Brand's monologues on YouTube, by the way, absolute killer. And Absolutely. yeah. He's, yeah but but anyways this is kind of the the world we live in where like the the only reasonable people are people operating in alternate media whereas people in cnn and within the government who have the most power are giving these religious decrees that have far more harms and dangers to our society than any kind of benefit yeah well i think it's interesting that because I mean, I think you mentioned that the vac- the mandates aren't going anywhere. And I think you're right. The mandates aren't going to go away. And I think that a lot of the people who are going along with the mandates are going along with, just because this is they've responded to me saying this when I've asked, you know, they think that the, the mandates are temporary. They're like, oh, the mandates are just these passports, these mandates, these like travel restrictions. It's just temporary until we get control 
over COVID and then they'll get rid of it all. And I'm like, I don't think so. That doesn't, that's not how this has been going all along. Um, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, my inner optimist is trying to make a case in my head for like, no, 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 no. Like they'll, they, they got to stop the mandates at some point, you know, like that mm-hmm. part of me says that, but then the other part of me just knowing, you know, human psychology is like, once you have control, it is incredibly difficult to relinquish that control. And so yeah. once you can force people, coerce people to get vaccinated, to have their jobs on the line, to restrict their access to working out at a gym, by the way, where I live in BC and in most places in Canada, you have to have a vaccine card to go to a gym. Crazy. That is the most Crazy. asinine, like fucking pathological, stupid thing to ever implement. Like, Do they make you wear a mask at the gym? Well, I, I'm not going to name which, which gym I go to. The, the person who maybe owns it is maybe listening to this, um, and I don't want to out him. But no, no, and thankfully there's a gym I go to that actually welcomes me and doesn't exclude me because okay. of my vaccination status, which is the only gym in my city, as far as I know, that does that, which is amazing. But otherwise, I know so many other people in places like Vancouver. Like, every gym is enforcing these laws. And, like, you know, we know working out – maintaining uh, physical fitness is a preventative measure for serious COVID symptoms, which by the way, I should bring this in now. This, this is so like insane to me. Like I can't even believe I'm saying this, but I think you might've seen this on my Instagram story maybe, but the Saskatchewan health agency, they have a verified Twitter account. They tweeted out a couple months ago that COVID risk is not related to age or fitness, it is only uh, related to vaccination. They legitimately tweeted this out. I've screened, like, it's still up. We need to delete it. They said it's not, it's like uh, your risk of COVID is based on your vaccine, your vaccination status it is not based on your age or fitness. What the fuck? That goes against absolutely everything we know about Everyone this Everyone knows that's not true. We all know that's yeah. not true. There are studies showing that like 75 to 80% of people in ICUs with COVID have obesity. We know age is a factor. We know the risk multiplies by like a hundredfold if you jump from risk from 20 to like 40 or even like a thousandfold. Like the risks, they, they jump significantly by age. This is not new. This is mainstream science. And the fact they tweeted that out just shows the, 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 the corruption of these institutions that that no wonder people, some people are skeptical of the vaccine. It's like, they're tweeting out absolute scientific misinformation. How can we trust this vaccine if, you know, this is like not to say, again, not to say you shouldn't get vaccinated. If you think that's best in your interest, you should do that. And I support you for that. Older people should do that. But you can understand some of the pushback and some of the hesitancy, given how horrible and abysmal the public messaging on the vaccine has been. I know. I mean, this is a perfect way to get people not to trust the government, to trust health authorities and to trust the media. It's baffling to me that anybody believes anything that the mainstream media says at this point, as well as the government and health authorities, because they've given us conflicting, untrue information over and over and over again, solely for political purposes or to manipulate the public. I mean, it's it's baffling to me that people in Canada are still listening to what they're being told by the CBC 
Um, but they are, they're totally just continuing to ingest this, this propaganda that's being fed to them. And I just, I find it so depressing because so many people over there are going along with it and they still think, oh, well, the government has my best interests in mind. The CDC is, has my best interests in mind. And it's just not true. And I just, I, I feel so bad for people living in Canada right now. Honestly, it just seems miserable. And, you know, and having lived somewhere where I've been, you know, free, essentially, I just like, I wish they knew. I mean, you know, but a lot of you like it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to live under these conditions. And it's not acceptable to give up your rights and freedoms and to be told you are not allowed to operate in society, to have a social life, to be around people that you love, to have fun, to go out dancing, to go to the gym. You know, I miss dancing, by the way. I'm a huge dancer. I miss dancing. Yeah, I mean, I did I too that. when I was in Vancouver. I was miserable when I was in Vancouver, and I'm not a miserable person. You know, I don't struggle with mental health issues or depression, but I was super depressed. I was super anxious. I was super unhappy. I mean, it's, it's really, it's unhealthy. I mean, it's unhealthy to say, tell people they can't like participate in sports or go to the gym, but in terms of like your mental health and in terms of being trapped at home in your apartment and, and, you know, scrolling through the internet all day long, like, it's all it all has a horrible impact on our health in a variety of ways and yet they're pretending that this is all to protect us to protect to keep us healthy and it it doesn't make any sense to me. No. No, it no it makes no sense at all. And and the fact that you can get better medical advice from Joe Rogan yeah. than you can from doctors on CNN or doctors within the Biden administration or fucking uh, whatever her name is, Teresa, the public. Tim. Tim. Right. Uh, or, or go with Dr. Fauci. So the fact that you get better advice from Joe Rogan on how you should prevent COVID, that is a tragedy. Like, yeah. and I, I made this point on Drew, and I tried to, like, bracket it as much as possible to not sound like I'm some, like, idiot who's, like, listening to some, you know, podcaster for what he should do with his life. But, but no, it's true. It's like you... You, like never once do you hear like Joe Rogan has hammered on this point like a, a billion times already, and I like it's such an important point. It's like you don't hear Dr. Fauci or Teresa Tam or any public health officials or even sometimes your family doctors say take zinc, take vitamin D, take zinc with quercetin because that activates the, the zinc molecules and strengthens your immune system and, and give, helps you uh, acquire much more robust response when when uh, bacteria or or uh, you get uh, infected with COVID. Um, the fact that nobody's talking about how you should exercise, you should meditate, you should do things to clear your mind and your body, eat healthy, is just insane. And and instead, it's just vaccinate, get, va- get vaccinated, get vaccinated. But it's like, hold on. I know people who've gotten vaccinated who had horrible COVID symptoms despite having vaccines. And and that and, and a lot of those people too, like they had shitty lifestyles anyways. And so just yeah. to tell them, like vaccination might just be like a band aid. Well, th- those people certainly won't die from COVID now. Well, many of those people wouldn't have died anyways, but at least they have like that guarantee. But when it comes to actually like living a healthy lifestyle, you're not getting any real uh, 
uh, uh, medical advice from the public establishment. That's why Joe Rogan is getting millions of views is because he's actually disseminating, not saying he's right on everything, not saying he's some guru that you should blindly follow. But a lot of the stuff he says about lifestyle um, and, and fitness and health is, is crucial and has been totally missing from the medical authorities. And that's about long-term health. It's not about short-term, yeah. like you say, band-aid solutions. And what, what is important in terms of leading a long and healthy life, if that's what you want, is these kinds of lifestyle changes, supplements, like exercise, eating healthy, so on and so forth. Um, I'm going to let you go. It's been an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me. This was super interesting. Um, and I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And I'm really impressed that you're so young. I hope that doesn't sound condescending, but you're no, doing no, no, really no, 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 no. You should correct that. You should correct that. I actually, I'm, I'm trans age. So I, I identify as a 40 year old. Oh, you know, I, okay. Apologies. I was older. And a so coconut, was, yeah. like you mentioned earlier, coconut, I think your pro, identity pronoun, was, was coconut yeah. person. Pro, pronoun is doctor. Yeah. So, okay. No, you can't use he. Doctor Coconut is forty. Doctor Coconut, forty-year-old, <laughs> award-winning journalist. So. Great, perfect, awesome. Um, okay, well, I enjoy your time in the U.S. and uh, I hope things improve or change in Canada, and that they let you escape again at some point. I, I'm oh. going I'm I'm to try and stay here as long as possible. By yeah, the way. you should as, try to as hang much on as for I, as long as you can. I, I'm, I'm hanging on for the life of me, so we'll see. And and I've included some links to your New York Post articles and your Twitter in the show notes. But let people know how they can find you and find your work and follow you online. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's Twitter Ravarora one. But, you know, I have this new Substack, ravarora.substack.com. People mm -hmm. can start reading that. That's going to be a newer alternate space for me to channelize some of my more uh, existential, spiritual interests. And I'll be writing about my MDMA therapy experience next month, psilocybin experiences, meditation, mindfulness, more kind of esoteric philosophy stuff, which nobody ever associates with me. This is going to be a new step for me in my journey. Mm -hmm. So write about psychedelics, which I, which I think are just immensely useful based on what we have with the science. Extremely safe within the proper conditions, by the way. Don't just go out and be like Megan Murphy taking MDMA at a party in her 20s. Like, party. somebody gave <laughs> me this pill. <laughs> I, I want to I I meet Megan from her 20s. What is she like? Is she different? But <laughs> Well, I mean, I still, I, I, I still do drugs now. I'm not, you know, I just, I prefer controlled yeah. Sure. Partying. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. <laughs> take random pills from people at parties or random powders. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you do drink. I like to drink, know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> you you drink your disgusting gasoline concoctions. Ricea. I know. Ricea. It's getting such a bad rap thanks to Rogan. He couldn't take it. Yeah. I mean, it really. I really do enjoy it. I know that I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm I not in the you, majority, but. Yeah. I bet you the sales the sales plummeted for that drink after Rogan was like, "What the fuck is this?" I don't actually think so. I mean, I, so many people asked me about it and continue to ask me oh, about okay, it. So I think okay. people are seeking okay. it out, maybe just as a novelty. Oh, but really? I do. I mean, really? I do. I have generally. I've tried my best to big it up and be like, 
don't listen to Rogan. This is actually good. But it, it sounds like people are coming to Mexico and like are coming to this area anyway, because this is specific to the, the state that I'm in and yeah. trying it just to see what this turpentine tastes like. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but, but, um, yeah. yeah, with, yeah. So Substack, the people can follow me there now with psychedelic stuff. I'm, I've been, I've been partnering up. I'm starting to partner up with the Substack, uh, founders. I kind of build a pretty big platform with psychedelics because nobody's really doing that on Substack. So I'm kind of the first person to initiate this very intimate journey, a very intimate and spiritual journey that I hopeful that hopefully people can follow me with. And it'll be a very kind of vulnerable step, but it's very, very exciting for people to kind of look at me from not just an objective analyst of, of facts and of complicated issues, but also of of uh, somebody who, like everybody, is trying to understand the world and, you know, figure out ways to overcome the kind of mundane, quotidian forms of suffering that we all uh, are faced with. Cool. That sounds super interesting. Um, thanks again for joining with me. It was really awesome to talk to you. I hope that we can do this again sometime. Yeah. And um, all the best. Have a great night. Thanks. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. I rely solely on donors and individual supporters to continue to do the work I do. You can donate as little as $5 a month or more. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.